It is 12 o'clock and welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. I am Dr. Laura DeVoe and I am your host for today's show. Uh, You are here on Fireside and we are talking about the recent special investigation into the University of North Carolina system. Uh, But before we get into that, we have some news of the day. Uh, So right now, out of Inside Higher Education, we have a study uh, that comes to us saying Parent PLUS loans increase racial debt burdens. Uh, This comes in the wake of the announcement that uh, President Biden might be canceling $10,000 in student debt. But according to civil rights advocates, they're worried that this figure may not be enough. Uh, It appears, based on uh, this study released Tuesday by the Century Foundation, that when it comes to black and Latino parents, black parents are disproportionately burdened by debt taken out for their children to attend college through the Parent PLUS loans, federal loans, uh, and uh, other avenues in that direction. The Century Foundation found that 42% of Parent PLUS loan borrowers are low income and low wealth compared to 26% of Latino and 8% of white borrowers. As a result, black borrowers struggle to pay such debt, further continuing the racial wealth gap. We will see what happens. We've been tracking this for some time, and we will see what actually ends up happening with this. Uh, According to the Heckinger Report, one university has a new college specifically to re-enroll adults who had dropped out. Uh, The Heckinger Report brings us uh, information about Morgan State University in Baltimore uh, uh, that we are actually allowing uh, for us to re-enroll students uh, and uh, We will see how that goes. Uh, That is an interesting story. I'll make sure we put that up in our our information on our replay. And then finally, uh, from Harvard University, out of higher education dive, uh, Harvard is announcing at the end of April that it would invest $100 million to redress its links to slavery. Um, however, uh, it has gotten backlash uh, from the community saying this is same same actions, different day. Not a lot of good information coming from Harvard by activists there. So uh, we are going to keep an eye on that as well. So you are here with Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Again, my name is Dr. Laura DeVoe. If you are new to Fireside Chat, we invite you to please uh, you know, engage with the show. You can actually broadcast to the world by going to the hamburger in the lower left-hand corner of your screen if you're here with us live. Um, if you click on the hamburger, you can then hit this button that says broadcast to the world by broadcasting to the world you can actually push it out to your twitter your linkedin or other uh, social networking opportunities uh and i invite you to do so office hours with dr devoe is here on fireside every week Uh, we have a special edition tomorrow at two o'clock with our think tank Uh, they will be back for a final academic year think tank episode Um, And so today uh, we have with us uh, Hank Reichman. Um, On April 28th, the American Association of University Professors released a report of the Special Committee on Governance, Academic Freedom, and Institutional Racism in the University of North Carolina System. Uh, And uh, Dr. Reichman was a member of the committee and he is here to discuss uh, the results of this program. Uh, and this investigation, uh, which ultimately discovered extraordinary partisanship and political interference that has resulted in deep racism across the system that has impacted governance, hiring, and academic freedom. Uh, we, uh, uh, Hank is a professor emeritus of history from California State University at East Bay. Um, he is also a a former AUP first vice president chair, um, member at large, and uh, has written two books on academic freedom, both published by 
uh, Johns Hopkins Press. So uh, Hank, welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, and we will put all of the information on Hank's books also in the replay, uh, so you have access to that. Welcome, uh, Hank, and thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, you know, I want to uh, frame what brought you to this. Obviously, you have a long history with AUP, and you can give us some more details on that. But what brought you to this committee? How did it all come about? Who called for the investigation? Um, tell us a little bit more about the process, because that was one of the big questions I got from folks saying, okay, where does this come from? How does AUP, AAUP start these kinds of investigations? Well, AUP has been doing investigations of violations of academic freedom since it, literally its founding in 1915. Uh, and uh, what we do is, is when issues arise at specific campuses uh, around, go, around academic freedom and uh, for the last several decades also around shared governance is issues, um, we empower a committee of people with no connection to the institution to look into the situation and issue a report. Um, occasionally, uh, maybe a half dozen times or so over the years, we've had what we've called special investigation reports. They're not really investigations of a particular controversy or uh, incident or issue, but of a pattern of concern. Uh, two of the most famous were ones of an investigation in the 1950s of the uh, slew of violations of academic freedom and faculty rights associated with the McCarthy era uh, and the Red Scare of those days. Uh, another was a special investigation of the University of Higher Education in the state of Mississippi in the 1960s in the wake of the uh, uh, violent response at the University of Mississippi and elsewhere to desegregation. Um, so this investigation came about when uh, the association, both through our members in the state of North Carolina and our chapters there, uh, but also just at, from reading the higher ed press and reading the press, were, were struck by a continuing pattern of controversy in the North Carolina system, uh, most famously, of course, around the Silent Sam statue, around the Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure case, around the uh, closing of several privately funded uh, research centers, uh, and, and a series of other in in instances and charges we were hearing that North Carolina system was plagued by problems associated with institutional racism, and in particular, the politicization of the whole university system, particularly since 2010. And these investigations are called for by the staff of the AUP, and the, the executive director, Julie Schmidt, came to the conclusion that this would be a, a, a good opportunity uh, uh, to do a special investigation, especially considering that the pattern we were seeing in North Carolina, there were significant signs that this kind of politicization of university systems was happening elsewhere. And of course, uh, since we began the investigation, uh, we've heard calls for similar investigations in Florida, Georgia, uh, Texas, uh, and, and elsewhere. So uh, that's the context in, in which uh, oh, we made the decision to do this. Uh, and so uh, a, a body of eight people um, was put together, two co-chairs, uh, Nick Fleischer, a professor of linguistics at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, uh, and Afshan Jafar, a sociologist at um, Connecticut College, um, were the chairs. Uh, I was asked to serve on it in part because of my I've had experience with these investigations as well. Uh, and we conducted via Zoom... Um, interviews with dozens and dozens of people at, uh, all over the place. We Not everybody participated in every interview. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then we uh, wrote up the report, shared drafts of different sections among ourselves, uh, and eventually submitted it to the staff of the AAUP. 
I appreciate the detail there because I think it's important that folks understand how the AUP engages in this, how they are contacted by members, how they actually bring people in from around the country that have an expertise in this, that the investigation goes on uh, in a very particular way. Um, so that really adds some insight to this. Um, you brought up a few of the, uh, you know, kind of the, the the things that kind of were the final dominoes, so to speak. So you brought up the, the Silent Sam statue, um, as well as a couple of faculty hiring and promotion matters. And I want to spend a, a, just a little bit of time on those uh, those examples so folks understand mm -hmm. kind of what was happening. And and again, one of the things that's important here is this is a state system. This isn't the flagship only. There were issues across the system, right, Hank? Yes, very much so. And in fact, the problems we, we believe uh, I think it's a conclusion of the report, stem from the intense ideological and political um, role being played by the system-wide board of governors. North Carolina, every state system is a little unique in its governance, but North Carolina's system has a peculiar thing where the system as a whole has a board of governors, but each of the campuses has its own board of trustees. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, uh, we believe the problems stem from the Board of Governors, which is now appointed solely by the legislature. And since at least 2010, the appointments have been intensely political. Now, such appointments are always political. No one denies it. Uh, but in the past in North Carolina, as in most states, the effort had been made to uh, put some sort of balance and, and to get people on the board who didn't see themselves as political uh, agents of the governor or the legislature in, in North Carolina, it's now exclusively the legislature, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, who saw themselves as custodians of the system uh, and uh, brought to it, of course, their own political approaches and backgrounds, which is a totally appropriate. Uh, but we, we see that, and now that has passed down unevenly, I believe, to the different boards of trustees at each of the campuses. So, mm -hmm. so we did find this to be a system-wide uh, issue, although I will say this, that uh, some elements, some places in the system are been, have so far been more impacted than others. Clearly, uh, the flagship campus at Chapel Hill has been a focal point for much of the controversy. Uh, but other campuses, Appalachian State in particular, I did a lot of the interviews with Appalachian State mm -hmm. faculty and uh, some very real issues there, although there are some of the other campuses where so far they've managed to avoid some of the worst stuff that we uncovered. Okay. And so... The, the Silent Sam, let's talk about that a second. This was at um, the flagship, um, and there was a, a statue called Silent Sam. It once stood in the middle of the main campus. This is from a story from NPR, and I'll, I'll provide a link to this for folks who are listening to the replay. Um, and it allows for us to look at the University of North Carolina system, uh, or sorry, Chapel Hill announced uh, that they were taking this statue down um, and it created the, it was a surprise removal, was ordered on a Monday by the chancellor who also announced that she was stepping down. Um, and what about the, the announcement? What about the timing really kind of got everybody going on this thing? Well, let, let, me, let me backtrack a little bit to some of the background because this statue is of a Confederate soldier. It was donated by the Daughters of the Confederacy in the early 20th century. Uh, at, at its uh, founding, a, a, a then trustee of the institution, a leader of the Ku Klux Klan, made an atrociously racist speech uh, mm -hmm. about his great pride in, as he put it, whipping a Negro wench. Um, this is the, you know, the kind of background of this statue. Uh, and it's been an item of controversy at least since the 1960s on the campus. Periodically, there's been demonstrations, been defaced. Beginning uh, around 2011 or so, there began to be a consistent campaign among students, many faculty members, and others in the community as well for the removal of the statue, that it was, it's time had passed, this is not the message 
that a university should be sending, university that wants to be inclusive, that is no longer segregated, etc. Uh, and there was considerable resistance. Uh, eventually, in 2018, the statue was toppled by protesters okay. and removed. Uh, and the decision you refer to by former Chancellor Fault was to re- to remove the base of the statue and and all signs of it to basically acknowledge that this thing was just never going to go back up. Uh, and uh, there had been a proposal earlier to build kind of a museum for it for $5 million, which even the Board of Governors who wanted the statue back, you know, balked at the cost. Um, but not at the not at the background, but but balked at the cost. Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, but it was a crazy idea is like, why take it down and then order to re-erect it? I mean, as one of the students put it, you know, it's like, like, we'd be the only institution not only to like, fight to maintain one of these controversial statues, but to actually re-erect it. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so when when Chancellor Fall took that move, it was clearly going to run afoul of the Board of Governors, and she coupled it with her resignation. And she's now uh, at the University of Southern California, where she is the, uh, I think she's the president now at Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. USC. Um, uh, But this didn't bring an end to it because the system surreptitiously negotiated with uh, the Sons of the Confederacy a deal where the Sons of the Confederacy would sue the university and then the university would settle literally two minutes after the suit was filed, the settlement, which of course had been negotiated in advance, to give them two and a half million dollars to take the statue off the university's hands. Uh, and when it came out, of course, what had happened here, there was tremendous outrage. And eventually the judge who approved this settlement, he had had the wool pulled over his eyes. And when he realized what had happened, he just voided the settlement and made the, the Sons of the Confederacy uh, give the money back to the university minus lawyers' fees. They didn't want the, the, the lawyers to uh, pay a cost. Um, and uh, I don't know where the statue now sits, but uh, hopefully it will not reappear. But I want to say one thing about the Asylum Sam's statue is uh, you could write a book about this, and I I would not be surprised if somebody is right now. Uh, And much of our account comes from publicly available documents and and other materials. What was unique in our investigation, what I think we contributed around this statue was the the things we heard from faculty members, particularly faculty members of color, about how the statue and the controversy surrounding it and the university's actions affected them uh, and the deep impact. Uh, and I'm not one to throw around words like trauma when just, you know, it's really discomfort, et cetera. But I, I think what, what we heard, I think we can't call it anything but trauma for uh, a uh, African-American faculty members and students who are already still a minority on that campus Mm -hmm. and who, as are elsewhere in our report, we document face a number of very serious challenges associated with institutional racism, not necessarily personal racism, but institutional uh, barriers to their achievement. The feelings that they had on the campus of literally being endangered. Uh, I mean, remember, you have to put this in the context. This controversy came in the wake of the events at Charlottesville. And faculty members pointed out to us that that, that every day when they went to campus, they could fear that some guy like the guy in Charlottesville would, would drive a car. Mm-hmm. into a group of protesters, into into them as they're walking on campus. So, you know, this, this is, I think, the, the, the real, you know, uh, that section of our report our, summarizes a lot of publicly available stuff. But what I think we found was the impact uh, of this co- controversy on broader issues on the campus. It's, a, it's creating an abusive relationship with your employer. You can't just be there and be present and do your work when you're in an environment that you feel you are not only unsafe, but you are, uh, you are disposable. Yes. No, I think that puts it well. Um, You know, and I think there's other two other faculty hiring and promotion matters. A lot of people know about the Nicole Hannah Jones uh, situation where she's the author of the 1619 Project. She was 
uh, it was a very public and well-publicized botching of her hiring by the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. She ended up uh, not joining them uh, and then going on to Howard University. Um, but there was also a faculty member, Eric Mueller, um, and is it Mueller or Mueller? But he is a law professor who was not reappointed at UNC, and he's a very outspoken person, correct? Well, it was not that he was not reappointed to his faculty position. I mean, he okay. still is on the law, uh, the law school faculty there. But uh, for a number of years, Eric Mueller had served on the board of advisors for the University of North Carolina Press, one of the most prestigious university presses in the country. Uh, and he was he, he had become the chair of the board and was widely credited with uh, a number of real accomplishments for that press, including making it more a press for the all of the University of North Carolina and not just the flagship. UNC campus and uh, publishing a lot of materials for, associated with state history and a lot of other things. But he was also very outspoken around Silent Sam and other controversies on the campus. He wrote op-ed pieces, etc. cetera. Uh, and he was going to be reappointed to the board and reappointed as chair. And it was, it was a normal thing. This is just sort of right. a, a sort of, you know, standard procedure. The board of governors gets to rubber stamp the appointment. And it wasn't approved. Hmm. And that th they made no public statement about why, but yeah. everybody knew uh, that it was in retaliation for his public comments. Now, he's still a faculty member. Um, and we, at, we interviewed him and we asked him uh, about what this meant because our con concern, mine in particular, my concern was that UNC Press is – famously publishes a lot of material in history of race, um, in labor history and other things that are very well known. Uh, and I was afraid that the board would now come down around the content of what the university press published. And he said, as far as he can tell, that has not happened. Okay. Um, he said, but he was afraid, as he put it, that this, what if this is about more than just, as he put it, one loudmouth law professor? Right, right. You know, and so that was the concern. And of course, this pairs with the closure of uh, uh, the Center for Poverty uh, Law at the University of North Carolina, headed by another law professor, Gene Nickel, um, and uh, done in also in retaliation for Nickel's uh, articles as, you know, and, and when he was basically given a message, you know, privately, stop writing op-eds criticizing the legislature and the board of governors, or we're going to close your center. Mm. Well, he wouldn't stop writing them and they closed his center. Okay. Uh, so. So, you know, you're talking about retaliation. You're talking about a lot of things that are pointing to this idea of, of where the political overreach is happening, right? Where people are feeling that, uh, either the boards uh, or people influenced by the boards are stopping uh, academic uh, opportunities from continuing in these environments, right? And so when you think about retaliation uh, and you think about the issues of retaliation, were there other examples out there besides the ones that you've listed? And is it now pervasive that people feel that across the system that retaliation is common? Well, let me put it this way. We, the, the report has three major sections to it. One on academic freedom, but one on, first on, on governance, which is our biggest, we feel the biggest problem associated with the thing. Uh, second on academic freedom and third on institutional racism, which is very linked with the governance failures. Mm -hmm. I think. And on academic freedom, we cover a number of cases, obviously, um, the ones we've just been talking about, a few others. Uh, but we also point out that many faculty members told us that they thought they, they did have academic freedom, okay. uh, that there had not been any attempts to control their research or their teaching. Uh, however, many of them felt that there was a chilling effect from these bigger controversies and from the lack of governance and the lack of feeling that faculty members have a voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the way we put it in the report was that while 
we were not going to recommend uh, that the AUP censure the institution for violations of academic freedom, even though in these specific cases, we clearly think there were ones, uh, but rather uh, that the atmosphere for academic freedom is in jeopardy, uh, unevenly throughout the system, I think. Okay. Uh, and, you know, this is the problem is for every big case, and we see this everywhere, and this is one of the reasons we do our investigative reports is not so much because they're the only cases, but we want to highlight some of these things because of the potential chilling effect that they have. And that's our concern, I think. Um, there are some instances that we were told about uh, that we did not put in the report. One, in fact, was included in early draft in the report. When, uh, when it, the report came out, it wasn't in there uh, for reasons which I'm not quite sure of. I, I think in part just because it was getting too long anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, there might also have been some controversy when we give administrations an opportunity to respond to our drafts. And sometimes we make mistakes and they correct them. And we, we say, okay, and there are a number of places in our report, or sometimes we, we just put it in a footnote. We say, they, they questioned this and here's what they said, you know, so that we can be fair. Uh, and it may well have been that in this particular case that I'm thinking about, uh, that it turned out there was another side to the story we hadn't heard. Perhaps not. Uh, perhaps it just seemed irrelevant, you know, or, or, or overkill. But there are a number of other cases. But um, again, you know, the real issue is 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 these this politicization creeps through the system, and and then the racial environment, the sense that faculty members of color feel themselves besieged mm -hmm. is inevitably going to hurt, impact their academic freedom, even if the besieging is not particularly around a specific academic freedom type issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're not comfortable as a faculty member, if you don't feel supported, if you don't feel that you have a voice an appropriate voice in the running of the institution around decisions that are most appropriately made by the faculty, uh, then your academic freedom is ultimately going to be eroded, even if it is not directly limited or attacked. And, and that's the fear. And so that's how I think these three elements, the governance, the academic freedom element, the institutional racism, all are interrelated. You can't, you know, I mean, to organize a report like this is 36 long, very closely small type pages. Right. Um, we're going, you're not going to, um, uh, you're going to have to organize it in some way. But I, I do think it's one cohesive thing. So with the governance uh, section and the, the area of governance specifically, is there, what were the things that really stood out besides, uh, you know, we already talked about the politics and who was there. It, was there something about the racial makeup of uh, the trustees? Was there anything there that uh, you could also point to? Well, we did in the institutional racism section talk about the racial composition of, uh, of the trustees, uh, that they are not representative. It's a little uneven. I think the historically black and uh, institutions within the system, their boards of trustees are more diverse than elsewhere, not surprisingly. And there's six of them, um, correct. But, and we did find some things we acknowledge in the report where, where uh, some of the problems associated with those campuses are being dealt with, um, mm -hmm. although in an overall atmosphere that doesn't bode well for any of the campuses. Yeah, uh, but with respect specifically to governance, we found a number of issues uh, of appointments of of administrators and leaders that in which faculty should have a voice, in some cases, the primary voice. I mean, take for one example, uh, the appointment of the provost at uh, Appalachian State University. You know, the provost is the chief academic officer. It's if faculty don't have a voice in determining who the provost is and working with the provost, that's a big, big problem. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, there was a announced search, except it never happened. They just ap they appointed somebody. Okay, so let me let back up a second, Hank. So they announced we're going to have a search. So anyone who's listening to this who's had any experience on a college or university campus knows the drill. You announce a search, 
you go through either you're going to run it yourself or you're going to have a search firm do it. Um, and when you run a search, either way, there's an opportunity for the community typically to at least be informed of who uh, are part of the pool, especially the finalists. And at a state institution, typically it's all public. So you have to say who's in there. And that's not what happened. Well, no, I mean, this was this was the interim person suddenly just got made permanent. Uh, uh, and I mean, there were a lot. They also uh, there they they completely just disempowered the fa- the academic Senate. I mean, I don't want to get into the weeds and all the different. And we found set with the report deals with several different incidents of this. Another aspect of governance that, that we addressed was the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. Um, now. I also had the privilege of serving on another AUP special investigation. Uh, this was into into issues of shared governance at eight different institutions associated with COVID nineteen, okay. and nothing at. North Carolina was as atro- anything close to as atrocious as the things we found in that earlier investigation. Okay. So I will give them that. Okay. Um, but but it became clear to us that this was an example of how in governance one not only is the faculty voice being ignored and in some cases silenced but local administrators are being ignored and silenced and everything around reopening those campuses was all had to go through the board of governors you know, irrespective of local conditions, irrespective of what local faculty, students, staff, and local administrators felt was appropriate, not to mention, of course, local health authorities. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and this, to me, was, while it was, as I said, not nearly as outrageous as examples we have seen elsewhere in the country, which we said in that earlier report amounted to a, a national crisis in shared governance associated with the pandemic. Um, but it was in, uh, indicative and emblematic of a broader trend of uh, grabbing power and centralizing it in the board of governors in a way that is highly politicized and that is ultimately, I think, incredibly dangerous for for a university. And so what was the response when you published this? What did you hear back from people that you interviewed? What typically happens? You talked earlier about how the universities can respond. Did they respond? Well, we, we gave them um, the drafts and they wrote some things I, I, that went through our staff not because once the committee its report becomes the property of the staff yep uh and uh and, and they worked with it i know the chairs of the committee saw it I, I i did not see the responses from the you know and i understand that uh chapel hill and appalachian state gave the most detailed responses okay. and i do believe that there were changes made in response to you know where we had issues of fact wrong or where there was another side that perhaps we hadn't given enough voice to, that some changes were made, et cetera. Uh, and, 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 and as I said, corrections made, but we stand by the report. And of course they took us to task and the standard thing for all AUP investigation reports and administrations say, you have no authority over us. Mm. And of course we don't, we've never claimed to. We, right. the only thing we have is moral suasion. I mean, this is, you know, reporters don't have have authority either, but they report things. So uh, our investigations are are meant to be as uh, unbiased as we can. You know, so uh, but the interesting thing is once the report was then made public. The university responded without even reading the revised report that we issued. So they responded to things saying, oh, this report claims X, when in fact we no longer did. We had changed it in the final right. version, which says something. And, and that was uh, uh, a professor who is the, the head of our North Carolina conference. He teaches at Appalachian State. Uh, wrote a response on our blog about this, mm-hmm. pointing out how, you know, how, how this is very revealing right. of the, the way they consider faculty views, you know, 
Uh, and it's revealing, I think, of the fact that we were willing to, where appropriate, say, okay, you, know, you have a point, we're going to change it. We'll roll it back. We'll, you know, because yeah. we're, we're, we're faculty members. We, 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 the pursuit of knowledge and truth is what we're dedicated to. And that means that we're going to make mistakes and we're going to try to correct them. That's what, that's what academia is about, really. And these guys were not. You know, it was like they stood by the things they said to us even without even bothering to see whether we had responded correctly. And so uh, as for other responses, of course, I think the response of faculty members in North Carolina has been very grateful. Um, they're very happy that we, we, we did this. Um, uh, and they are, we are hoping, as they are hoping, that despite whatever public statements the universities might make, that this will be a useful tool in correcting some of the problems. We don't, we don't want, we will be happy to be able to be told five years from now, you know, a lot of the things we saw five years, you saw five years ago, no longer a problem. That would be great. That would be the best result. The other response to this has been from elsewhere in the country, and I think I mentioned this before, where we've literally heard from our colleagues saying, ooh, 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 can you come to my state? <laughs> Let's have you all, you know, just kind of do a red state review, right? <laughs> um, you know, when when you look at this, do you think that, you know, I sometimes I go into these things where it's like a little bit of awareness creates an avalanche of response. Um, when you when you've had this long experience with AUP and you have an expertise and a, a pretty rich background in academic freedom in terms of your publications, et cetera, do you think that when you open up this kind of like, look, we've done this investigation, this is what we're all about, this is what we've determined, for the people who are members of AUP, for people who are uh, trying to figure out what is it in terms of who listens to us, who sees us, who actually hears us. Do you think that this provides them with an empowerment feeling or a feeling of, oh, okay, finally someone's listening? Uh, well, I certainly hope so. Uh, I know that in every investigation I've been on, and I've been on several, uh, but I'm thinking mostly about these two most recent, the, the, the one we're discussing in North Carolina and the earlier one a year earlier about uh, COVID-19. Uh, in, in the past, we always did go to the campus. You know, well, you couldn't during COVID-19. We did it all by Zoom, which actually we may still be doing a lot of things that way because it, it allows you to talk to a heck of a lot more people. But at any rate, and the reaction we always got when we interviewed people was for so many people going, thank you, just for hearing me out. Yeah. And believe me, you know, this report could, could have been three, four, five times as long, could have written a book. Right. Um, and there was a lot of things that were told to us that we couldn't get in direct quotes, et cetera. But I know people felt like, oh, good, somebody's listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say this, that given the current situation in higher ed, ed, the real crisis I think we've been in for the last number of years, the, what I would argue is, is the ultimate uh, failure of the system of what some have called academic capitalism that has developed over the last 25, 30 years, um, we're seeing a renewed interest in the AUP. Mm. Um, a renewed interest in, where possible, unionizing either with the AUP or with other organizations. And we're, uh, AUP is now considering, and I, I believe probably will approve next, uh, later this month, an, an affiliation agreement with the American Federation of Teachers, which will provide us with more resources and them with more expertise. Mm. Um, and uh I think there's been a growing interest. I know we've seen new chapters springing up in a lot of places, uh, and um, uh, membership has been growing. Uh, I hope, I think, you know, we need more. Mm. Uh, when we're able to say, we issue this report and we speak for 50,000 faculty members across the country, that has a certain power. It would be even more power if we could say we speak for 150,000 faculty members across the country. Absolutely. Uh, so um, you know, we do what we can. 
I think that's great. And I think that actually adds a lot of perspective to this is that, you know, your membership in these types of environments matter. Okay. And that it pushes legitimacy behind the work of, of uh, the organization. So I appreciate that comment. Um, we are here. Uh, this is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We are here uh, throughout uh, the season. We're coming up the end of our season, our first season. Um, we've put together a lot of great shows. Um, and uh, we have several more coming up over the course of the remainder of the month of June. Uh, we have a special end of academic year think tank episode tomorrow at 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. I hope you're able to join us. We'll be talking about some of the some of the issues that have kind of plagued us throughout the year, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, that'll be tomorrow's show. Um, coming up uh, in on the 15th of June, we have a special episode at 11 o'clock in the morning Eastern time uh, on the war in Ukraine. We'll be joined by a member of the administration there uh, at uh, the University of Kharkiv, who's going to talk to us about what's been happening there on their campus. Uh, the University of Kharkiv has been around since uh, 1805, and uh, they are uh, right now, their library has been bombed out, their residence halls have been bombed out. Uh, the university uh, serves over 4,500 students and um, is one of the preeminent uh, medical training facilities in that part of Europe. So we're going to be hearing more about the impact of the war on that campus and what we can do uh, to uh, look into that. Uh, we also, at the end of June, will be joined by Nancy Hunter-Denny, one of uh, the nation's top uh, trainers uh, and uh, professional development uh gurus. And we'll be talking about how to put a personal uh, kind of lens on your own professional development in the upcoming academic year. Um, and we have a few other shows that are in, in the works that will happen before the end of June. And uh, then we're going to take a quick break for the month of July for a little bit of a mini sabbatical, and we'll be back in August. So uh, please be sure to follow me here on Fireside. Uh, and when you do that, you will get an alert every time I schedule a show. Um, and you can choose then to uh, RSVP and put it into your calendar. Um, and so you will get an alert when that show goes live. Uh, so, uh, Hank, I, you know, you brought up that, you know, right now we're at a crisis point um, in higher education. Um, we have uh, kind of reached our kind of low point in terms of public uh, trust of higher ed. Um, that beats up the faculty, um, beats up the administration. Um, and so they're in a vulnerable point when it comes to some of these influences of uh, politics on the outside, uh, trying to manipulate or to contr overly control what's happening on the campus. Um, what are your thoughts on, on what's to come potentially? What are some of the academic freedom pressure points that we might need to keep an eye on as we're looking towards the uh, the the next academic year and beyond? Well, let me let me focus on three areas that I think are, are critical right now. One, of course, has been the politicization of content mm -hmm. of the, these, you know, these so-called educational gag orders that we're, mm -hmm. we're seeing uh, that basically you know, attempt to dictate what can be taught and what can't be taught, um, irrespective of what is intellectually viable or not. Um, and while much of this has been directed at K to twelve, in increasing places, it's impacting higher ed. Uh, the so-called "you can't teach critical race theory," uh, of course. That term has come to be, you know, used to describe anything but what scholars actually call critical race theory. It's basically anything that teaches about race mm -hmm. uh, in a, a way that might be critical of white people. Uh, right. But, um, you know, I think this kind of thing, and, and it extends not only issues of race, but issues of gender, uh, these attempts to politicize the content of teaching is the first and most immediate steps, immediate crisis right now uh, on academic freedom. And, uh, and I think we, we need to, in this case, we need to develop what we developed 
somewhat in the late 1950s and into the 1960s, a kind of united front of administrations and faculty standing up to this kind of politicization. Um, uh, that will be hard, given that the legacy of the last 25 or 30 years or so has been increasingly academic freedom not being uh, assaulted against the institution, but eroded by the institutions themselves vis-a-vis their faculties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that brings me to uh, a, a second uh, area of challenge, which is, of course, one of the reasons for that has been that over the last uh, half century or so, we've seen uh, a steady defunding of public higher education um, and a concentration of wealth in the hands of a few privileged institutions, in particular, uh, some of the private institutions and some flagship uh, publics, but not all. Uh, and an impoverishment of institutions that serve the, the broader public, uh, minority-serving institutions, institutions like the one where I taught for uh, a quarter century, the California State University system, which has been deeply underfunded. And mm-hmm. the result of that has been a number of factors, but one factor I think has been critical has been a shift away from public funding toward private funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the search for donors to and now donors are fine and and no one would claim that a donor should should it be have to donate the things that they don't want to support they donate the things they do want to, but what we've increasingly seen has been donors dictating not only what is can be researched but what can be taught who can research it. Uh, and so we have these uh, centers endowed by uh, some of these right-wing think tanks, like the you know, funded by the Koch uh, Foundation and others, yeah. um, w- which have say mandated that that students must read certain books. Ayn Rand has been, you know, one of them. You know, I think this is a real danger that if we have donors dictating mm. what is going to be taught, and, and this is a function. But I, the third area I want to point to, but I think is the single biggest challenge to academic freedom has been the erosion of the tenure system. Mm. You know, 40, 50 years ago, some two thirds or more of all faculty teaching in four year institutions of higher education, actually in all of higher education, including community colleges, were on the tenure track, by which I mean either they were tenured or they were probationary for tenure. And those who were not in the tenure system were often people hired to teach specific kinds of courses. You know, they're practitioners. Uh, my favorite example is my wife is a criminal defense attorney. She used to teach a course at the law school at Berkeley in criminal trial practice, but she wasn't, you know, a regular faculty member. It wasn't her main source of income. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, now only a quarter or less of all teaching faculty in higher education are in the tenure system, you know, and it's not just that they're all people like my wife. There are people who are teaching some of them for as long as 20 years on term to term contracts without Mm -hmm. any protections of tenure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is tremendously endangering and it's endangering also to the tenured faculty members because, you know, not every tenured faculty member is, is courageous. But if you have a broad enough community of people protected by tenure, you're going to have enough leadership to stand up for the gadflies, for the controversial people, for the people who may not be personally the most appealing, but they're brilliant. Right. <laughs> you know, that's who, you know, who the system is designed to protect. And now that that system is literally on the ropes, mm-hmm. you know, the atmosphere for academic freedom is limited. I, I mean, some people like to say, we in the AUP say, all faculty members, regardless of their status, are entitled to academic freedom. But that doesn't mean they have it. Right. That doesn't mean they really are protected by it. And right. so this, to my mind, is the biggest danger we face right now. Uh, and uh, uh, And I think we need to have a much more thorough defense of what tenure is and what it is not. It's not a guarantee of lifetime appointment. It's simply a guarantee that after a probationary period, 
you can only be dismissed for cause after a due process hearing before essentially what amounts a jury of qualified peers. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't mean you can't be dismissed. And there are every day tenured faculty members who are dismissed for cause. What is cause? Well, failing to do your job. Right. You know, uh, being completely unqualified in your field. Sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Those should and. Those should be, people should be dismissed, but they should be entitled to due process rights. And, and, and that's the system that has been eroded. And too often now people are, are dismissed just simply by, well, your contract is not renewed. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have any need for you. Well, is that really the case? Or is it that you've become too controversial Mm -hmm. or too expensive? Right. Well, and I think there's also, there's, there's almost this, we have a few issues going on here. And I, I think that you're absolutely correct is that what you bring up there is about tenure provides people, especially when they're very good, if, when they're qualified, they're doing their job, all that sort of thing. Tenure provides people with an opportunity to be a bit more courageous. And I, I appreciate your, your statement there. The, the issue that we constantly hear about, we hear about the fringe issues. Like, well, that person never was qualified or that person was a known predator on their campus. Well, that person, I'm like, well, then where the hell was the administrative backbone to do something exactly. about it? Okay. Exactly. And so, you know, we, we get hung up on these issues where you say, well, that was never dealt well with. Well, that's a failure of the institution. The institution needs to be on top of those types of issues and, and deal with it. Okay. No, and, and, and look, I don't think people sometimes they get tenure and it should be a difficult process. It should be mm-hmm. a, a testing, a fair testing, but a testing. Uh, and then later on, some people say, you know, why the hell did we tenure that person? Well, sometimes you go, gee, we made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, mistakes are made. But in every profession, mistakes are made. We have, you know, uh, there are doctors who commit medical malpractice malpractice. and arguments can be made that the medical profession should be a little more rigorous in in policing medical malpractice. Maybe they should. Maybe they shouldn't. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert in the area. But just because there are doctors who abuse their position doesn't mean we shouldn't have a situ- a system in which doctors are protected from cho- you know unfounded charges yeah. uh, so it's the same for for any other profession absolutely the, the you know we had a show uh, a few months ago uh, by a few faculty members. We had two wonderful faculty members on who had been doing some research in terms of how the, the tenure process impacts minoritized faculty. And what you're saying um, about having a rigorous process, they didn't say that we don't need a rigorous process. We need to understand how the process may at times appear and actually end up in practice as being uh, it, it doesn't create a, a playing field that encourages minoritized faculty to do the kind of research that they want to do because, say, the journals and the places that they're doing publication are not in the same kind of when you rank these journals and what are considered for, for tenure, they don't always end up in the in the ranking um, and some other some other aspects. And they did some really great research. What you're talking about is a rigorous practice. It doesn't mean that the practice has to be rooted in something that was created in 1825. Oh, exactly. And in fact, academic freedom, academic freedom is is about judging faculty according to disciplinary standards and not according to extraneous criteria, be they political, racial, gender-based, or what have you. It's about this. But at the same time, academic freedom is also about the freedom for disciplinary standards themselves to evolve. And so, you know, uh, one of my predecessors as chair of Committee A and a current uh, member of Committee A again is, is John Wallach Scott. 
who is one of the great feminist scholars of, uh, of uh, uh, well, she's a little bit older than me, but my generation, I'll say. Um, and, uh, and, and Joan likes to point out that when she first came into becoming a historian, they were saying that the kind of work she was doing in the history of gender was, that's not history. She was told. But now we understand that it is history. And, you know, because she had the academic freedom to press and probe and push not only her own scholarship, but the disciplinary standards themselves, they evolved. Yeah, we've got only five minutes left, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of reflect back on this experience. And, you know, after you got to read the final report, after you actually saw the information out there, your background, obviously, you have a, a long background in academic freedom issues. You know, we've talked a bit about uh, some of the other items. Is there something else that's kind of out there that you're like, you know what, I really want to make sure people are paying attention to this? There's something else out there. Well, I, not, not something else, except I, I just want to say that I, I, you know, we worked on this, and you know, it was, it was, it, you know, because of the pandemic, it was a little strange. We had eight members of the committee, many, uh, most of whom I actually knew beforehand, but I had worked with in one other capacity, you know, but some I hadn't. And you know, we'd meet via Zoom, and then we we'd break up, we would do separate interviews with, you know, some of us would take one group of. A faculty. And then we parceled out the writing. I could tell you which sections I did an initial draft on and which ones I just, you know, edited. But when it all came together, it really struck me as wow. You know, and I and I really want, I hope that it it's it's an imposing report. It it it, it it's not something you could sit down and, you know, uh, read in 20 minutes. Um, but I'm hoping enough faculty members, and not only in North Carolina, certainly, will read this and will understand some of these issues perhaps a little better as, as exemplified in this particular case study, in this particular institution, and begin to ask some of the questions for themselves. Gee, how does my institution compare? Do we have some of the same problems? Uh, and... Uh, they, they won't necessarily be the same, but hopefully it'll make people think. And 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 that's what I'm hoping these these reports do. I'm 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 hopeful, but not optimistic, that uh, the administrations and the boards in North Carolina will read this report and go, you know, maybe we've gone a bit too far. Mm. We got to, you know, listen to this thing. I'm hoping they will. I'm not optimistic they will. But I am certainly more hoping that whatever they do, that faculty members around the country read these reports and begin to say, you know, I, I got I to gotta do more than just teach my classes and do my research. I got to get involved on some level right. in governance, in defending my profession. And the first step in my involvement is learning more about it, learning more about not what it means to be a professor in my field, at my institution, but what it means to be a faculty member in any discipline throughout in all the varieties of higher education in this country. I appreciate that. Um, and I want to thank you and the entire group for putting this together. It is a meaty 38 pages, and um, I will be using it uh, in a course that I'm teaching this year, uh, where we're going to be looking at, at issues around governance and what that all means. So I appreciate that. So we will be, you'll be added to my syllabus. Um, and, but I wanted to pull out, uh, when I was reading this, I, I highlighted, uh, one aspect, um, of the report that really kind of sat with me and I, and I'm glad you brought up what you just said is that I envisioned, a faculty member somewhere else in the country who may not be having some of the same exact issues on their campus, but there's a spirit to this quote that was, was in the report. The sincerest thing I can share with each of you is that Carolina is not prepared for the reckoning of which it continues to speak. And it is certainly not prepared to face the reality of having to undo the entire system upon which it was built and rebuilt. 
And that really, like, it hit me in the gut. And that was an important piece. And I want to thank whoever said that (laughs) for actually putting it out there because it does take uh, your platform. You need to use your platform to be able to be heard. If you don't use your platform, you will never be heard. And that's an important aspect of what happened here. And I want to thank people who came to you all um, to to speak their truth. So I appreciate that. And I speak and I appreciate you, Hank. So thank you all for being here. If people want to find you, what's their best way to connect with you? Um, well, uh, you can email me at hank.reichman at gmail.com. Uh, and I I try to, I'm a co-editor of the AUP's Academe blog, and I write a lot there. Um, not so much recently, but I will again. Uh, and there's several hundred posts of going back the last five, six, seven, or eight years. I'm not sure. Um, it's academeblog.org. Um, we do a lot of stuff there. And uh, and go to the AUP site. And if, if you're a faculty member and you're not a member of the AUP, please consider joining. There you go. Well, there's your there's your public service announcement for the day. So everyone, thank you all for being here. I'll be back here tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock uh, with our year end uh, think tank episode. Um, and please make sure you follow me here on Fireside. And if you are looking for other ways to connect with me, my information is right now scrolling in the middle of your screen. Have a great day, everybody. And now go out there and learn something. Have a good one.